please turn to the third chapter of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. Have any of you, this was completely new to me this week, but maybe I've missed it. Have, have any of you ever heard the expression that somebody is as rich as Croesus? Has anybody ever heard that? No, I, I, I read this commentary that says that the common well-known saying is rich as Croesus. I thought, I've, I've never heard of it. But apparently, it is that that statement comes from the ancient king of Sardis. Sardis was a city in Asia Minor, was once the capital of a kingdom called Lydia. And they became very wealthy because in the river that ran through it or, or um, near it, it there, was, there was gold in the river. Like it, there was so much packed into the ground that there was gold in the river, some gold. Croesus went to war against the Persian emperor Cyrus the Great after he consulted with the oracle at Delphi who guaranteed his victory. So you're, you're going to be victorious no matter what happens. If you cross the river Halys, you will destroy a great empire. He assumed it was Cyrus's empire that would be destroyed until it was his army that was crushed by Cyrus due completely to their negligence. The fortress of Sardis was surrounded on three sides uh, by these sheer cliffs that they thought were so impregnable they didn't even bother to guard them, ever. Uh, they were considered impossible to take. On the 14th day of the siege, a few Persian troops climbed the cliff at a point, again, where no guard was stationed because there was no fear. They found this entrance into the city. The Persian army was able to take the fortress from that side, and Sardis was completely overthrown. And so from that point forward, uh, what was once known as this wealthy, powerful, renowned city became known on the outside for losing everything, even though they tried to maintain this appearance of wealth and glory. They tried to live off their former fame and wealth, but no matter what Sardis did, Sardis was never what it had been before, never returned to that. What we find in the text, in the Lord's rebuke to them, is that the church is characterized in Sardis by the exact same issue, more or less. Just like the city, the church in Sardis was a contradiction between name and reality. So the church in Sardis, to Sardis, had a reputation of being this great church. So maybe they were, we don't know exactly what that means, but maybe they were very wealthy. Uh, maybe they had many influential members, or maybe there was a great deal of activity, but they had no substance. We can hear this very indictment um, when we hear Jesus' rebuke in chapter 3, verse 1. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Jesus knows, he always knows the true state of the church. The worth of a church in the kingdom of God is not in its size. It has nothing to do with its appearance or its history. It is in the substance of that church's confession. What do they believe? What do they proclaim? And what do they actually practice since or if they proclaim and believe those things? If we assume the gospel, if we just assume the gospel, like it, it, you never expressly say it, you never try to make the point of, of making sure people remember that we don't do our works by our own strength, that we are not saved by works, we're saved by grace through faith apart from works. If those things are, if the cross of Christ is not constantly proclaimed, Christ crucified, Christ risen from the dead, if we're negligent to stay alert about the things that have even the potential to undermine that exclusive message, we will be overrun by one thing or another. So the letter to Sardis is a clarion call to vigilance. 
more than anything else. To conquer the threat of worldly compromise in the last days, we must also be vigilant to reject things, even good things, that undermine the exclusive centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for your perfect word and for the voice and word of your son, Jesus Christ, who spoke to John these things, to his angel, to John, I should say. Father, we pray that tonight you would open our hearts to understand these things, to make sense of them in light of what they meant, of what they mean for our church. Father, I pray that you would keep me from speaking out of turn, that God, I I ask you to keep me from preaching myself, but Lord, keep me in the passage and please help everyone to hear and understand these things, including me. I ask and pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's read this letter, the first six verses of of chapter three. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So in verse 1, as with every letter, it starts with a description of Jesus by Jesus that fits the situation of the particular church to which he's writing. He also tells them what he knows about them. Then he tells them what they must do in light of that knowledge here him who has the seven spirits of god and the seven stars is the son of man whose seven spirits are god's one spirit who is limitless all-knowing present everywhere almighty that's the meaning of seven their perfection wholeness completion fullness later in chapter five of revelation john will see the spirit symbolized as the lamb's seven eyes which are he says the seven spirits of god sent out into all the earth. So the Son of Man sees His church perfectly down to their very bones, down to the core of their soul. That's how Jesus introduces Himself here. And He tells them, I'm the one that holds your identity in My hand. That's what He's saying to Sardis. Sardis has forgotten this. This is why Jesus is writing to them. They don't sufficiently consider the depth of knowledge He has about them This shocking awakening is coming if they don't wake up. They've been able to so go about their business as usual that they've fallen asleep to the reality of the constant knowledge and awareness and searching eyes of Jesus and therefore the lordship of Jesus. That's that's implied here. That is extremely important, beloved. Laziness in doctrine, laziness in matters of the truth will lead in laziness in our submission to Jesus. The truth is what keeps us and makes us what we are. They had a reputation for being alive, but they were dead, he says. It's an interesting consideration that to the city, 
or to other churches maybe in Asia Minor, this church had a reputation for being a good church, for being a solid church. But what Jesus can see is categorically different than what Sardis can see, the city they're in can see. Jesus knows they're dead, or all but dead, maybe, since obviously the hope of repentance is being granted here. A warning is being given. If all hope is lost, there's no point of a warning. But it doesn't matter what has made them look alive. It doesn't matter what makes them look like they're alive. They're actually dead. That's what Jesus says of them. And Jesus is the one whose assessment of a church matters. Jesus, beloved. So so what if we can congratulate ourselves, right? That isn't important. And here's what's so striking about this letter. He tells the church that they're dead. They need to wake up, repent. The letter does not tell us why. The letter does not pinpoint the cause of their deadness. Which means, beloved, it's not always something big that takes us under. It's not always um, a literal false deity. It's not always gross immorality. You don't have any Nicolaitans here trying to draw the church away through sexual immorality. You don't have a Jezebel-like prophetess who's teaching false doctrine and causing many to follow after her. The city of Sardis did have a very strong Jewish community. Uh, we know the problems that could create for the New Testament church sometimes. And they were, like every other city in the Roman Empire, deeply rooted in paganism. They had a patron goddess named Sibyl or Sibel, but the letter does not cite those things as the issue. And every time it has been the issue, it is cited. Here it's not. I think that's massive. There, As far as we know, there are no external sources of intimidation on this church. Uh, there's no social rejection or persecution like in the other churches that, that they, you know, facing those things from Satan. Satan didn't live in Sardis, as it had said, I forget in, in what letter it says this yet, in Pergamum, I think. Yet this church is dead. This church is dead. They're spiritually unconscious. How did that happen to a church where none of those other things are present? Or did it happen because none of those other things are present? And I... This letter is the one that troubles me the most for our church because it, I, I, I feel like we're more like Sardis in that or the church in Sardis than we are necessarily like the other churches. I, I don't think of us as lukewarm like Laodicea. We don't have any Nicolaitans. We don't have any like major false teaching. We don't have any real persecution, at least not yet. We, we, we don't have any of those things. And this week in studying... It's just, it's, it's laid a burden on me for our church in several different ways. And, and we, we cannot rest on our laurels, right? I mean, we, one of the amazing things about this church is how well put together it is, how organized it is. You think I'm, I'm patronizing you. I'm not. I, I, I know I've, maybe I've mentioned this before, but if I could show you the difference between how your church presented themselves in searching for a pastor compared to others, the organization, the, the orderliness, the, of just everything was so helpful and so thorough. And, and things like that are, are very rare. You know, it, 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 um, so in so many ways, our church is in solid shape. The thing is, we can't rest 
because of that. I, I know I talk about rest. I'm not talking about that kind of rest right now. We, we can't become apathetic. We can't think that because we lack false prophets, thank God, or because we uh, don't have any specific church-wide temptations to gross immorality or idolatry, we, don't, we aren't suffering right now any intimidation or social rejection or persecution, I just, we, we can't therefore put ourselves on cruise control. We, we, beloved, we can't do this. The burden I believe the Lord, I hope the Lord has laid on my heart as your pastor, is that we really must pay attention to the church in Sardis. We need to listen to this letter, beloved. There's so much to be thankful for here. Right? This church has an extremely rich heritage. Um, God is with us. Jesus sees us. But, beloved, let's ask harder questions. Right? Are we making disciples faithfully? Are we reaching the lost? Are we reaching Moundsville in the Ohio Valley? What would our community say we're about? What is our reputation in our community? And is that reputation based on those things that Jesus would look at and be pleased with? Right? In other words, let's say the community thought very highly of us, which I, I gather that they do. I've never really heard anybody talk down about our church or criticize it. People, when you say it, they immediately know what we're talking about. I don't know what it is about the way I look, but whenever it comes up and somebody says, what do you do? And I say, I'm the pastor. Where? Uh, the, the Moundsville Baptist Church. The big one on the corner? I'm like, yeah. They're like, you're the pastor? I'm like, yeah, yeah. You don't... <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I really, I, I don't know. But in other words, I, I think that rightfully so, thankfully so, our reputation in the community is solid. That's good. That's great. I'm not indicting us tonight. I'm asking, what is our reputation to Jesus? Right? What does Jesus think of us? And, and when we try to answer that question, what evidence would we use to say it? One way or the other, right? I'm, I'm just the pastor. I'm not like, I don't have insight into all your hearts. I don't, I don't know where everybody is. I'd like to, but, but let's, if just inside as we work through the passage, what is our reputation to Jesus? And tonight, to faithfully answer that question, would each one of us be willing to take the posture of repentance tonight, of humility tonight, asking God to search us and reveal these things? to us, right? Let's ask the Lord, are, are we actually being faithful or do we merely want to look faithful? Do we just want to keep things going? Is that what's most important to us? I don't know. And I, I don't think that we're a dead church. That's, I, I don't. I don't. I've, I've been in those. You've been in those. We're not like that. I, I just, I don't want us to be in critical condition either, right? I don't want us to be on life support either. In verse 2, Jesus tells them, wake up, right? Wake up, he says. They don't know they're sleeping. When you realize when you're sleeping, you don't, you're like, I don't, you don't realize that you're sleeping. If you wake up from a dream, then you realize it, but they don't know they're dead, right? It, when your reputation is good and things are going along smoothly and there isn't a lot of trouble, you won't know that you're dead. How did they not know they're dead? Beloved, because 
what we consider evidence of spiritual death and what Jesus considers evidence of spiritual death are apparently radically different. Verse 2, verse 3, he commands them twice, wake up. And he threatens them with judgment in verse 3. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. That's strong. Because warnings that Jesus will come like a thief are usually aimed at those who have not repented and believed on him for salvation. He's usually talking about his second coming. Here it's his church that he gives this warning to. Remember, these are literal churches, the seven churches in Asia, right? These are literal churches, literal people. And here it's them, the church that receives the warning that Jesus may come to you like a thief. He will not tolerate a dead church. And what makes them dead? Your works are incomplete in his sight in verse 2. They are about to die, he says. Sardis was a very peaceful church. We can gather. You have a good reputation. Things are going well. Yet it was the peace of a cemetery. All was well. All was quiet. So is the grave. Right? They didn't have any glaring, obvious, or embarrassing issues in the community. In fact, they had a certain presence and reputation in the community that was generally very positive. And yet in the eyes of Jesus, they're on the verge of death. Their works are incomplete. The Greek word for complete here, by the way, is pleru. It's used elsewhere by John to mean full. Fullness, John 3.29, John 16.24. The implication is that their works were very impressive in the eyes of men. And it, it seems like there were a lot of them then. But in the sight of God, their works have no substance. They're not all the way there. Um, again, it's, it's, it's just like the city. They'd begun construction in Sardis of this magnificent temple to uh, the goddess Artemis, same as in Ephesus, and they didn't finish it. It just sat halfway done, never was finished. The church is just like that. In the Old Covenant, right, blemished lambs were not permitted to be used for sacrifices. Here in Sardis, Jesus sees a religion that lacks any true devotion to God, and this is unacceptable to Him. They are the example of going through the motions. The church in Sardis. Again, there is a certain negligence, a certain lack of vigilance in just keeping things going keeping the bills paid, keeping the lights on, that is so deceptive, it, it makes us think that by being busy and orderly, we're being fruitful and pleasing to God. Business as usual will make us look alive to the world, won't it? Right? If, if, we, if we do good things, good things like keep the grass cut, take care of the... All, all those are good things, right? But I'm saying you could only be doing those things and... and having a nice showing of cars in the parking lot on a Sunday, right? And people will think they're there, they're, if they think of it at all, right? They're there, they're doing good, they're still going, still paying the bills, all that. Business as usual makes us look alive to the world. It does not make us look alive automatically or categorically to our Lord Jesus. We want our reputation to be determined by Jesus. And beloved, one way to answer this question is to take a very honest look within and look around and say, okay, what do I hear to be the major concerns in our church? What gets people riled up? What bothers them? What brings out their emotion, right? These 
Is it, are we making enough disciples? Are we seeing people one to Christ? Are, are we, are we faithful in our doctrine? Are we faithful in our worship? All these things, are, are those the things that, you know, make us uncomfortable, get us going, get us moving, motivate us, or is it other things, right? What was the source of it in Sardis? Why exactly were their works incomplete before God? What is there? What does remain in verse 2 and is about to die, though? Well, what remains? What do they have? Beloved, what every church has. Which is why the text is living and applies all the time. They had the gospel. They did have that. For Jesus, then, the means by which our works are made complete and our reputation before Him is approved is a return to and a refusal to back away from an exclusive commitment to the gospel. Notice how he explains this or modifies it specifically in verse 3. That's how we know that's what he means. Look at the first part of 3. Remember then what you received and heard. So your works are incomplete. You're about to die. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. So the call back to doing the works is to keep something, not to do something, right? They got to take care of something first that they used to have, that they kept, and now they don't keep it anymore. Keep what? Keep what you've heard. What have they heard? They've heard what every church has heard, the gospel, and repent for not keeping it, for not continuing to hear it, or not paying enough attention to it, for not making it central and crucial enough in your own thinking and in your own hearts, your own identity, your own purpose as a church, right? When the purpose of the church becomes to survive, we start dying. Right? I want to say that again. When the purpose of the church becomes survival, that's when we start dying. Beloved, we want to be replicating. We, we want to be like ripples in a pond. Right? I mean, I... Well, I'll come to that some other time. But, beloved, the, the goal is not to survive. We want the truth we proclaim to survive. And if it, it can't survive here, we want it to survive in Moundsville. We want it to survive in the Ohio Valley. Beloved, for Jesus then, this is so critical, the key to the church's fulfillment of its mission and its practical works is an unwavering, ever-vigilant commitment to the truth of the gospel that founded us, that is the reason we exist here in the first place. When outward evidence of the faith is lacking, right? when we can know on the authority of God's Word that the issue is in what we believe, in what we should have been keeping and hearing, and we've forgotten it, it's become peripheral, it's on the side, the issue is in what we actually do prioritize rather than what we say we prioritize, right? That's where the issue is. I doubt you would have walked into Sardis and found doctrinal issues in the church, right? I don't think that's what's going on other than apathy about it, right? So maybe on paper, if they did that sort of thing, they had the truth. And if you would have asked them what was true, they would have told you. Something is happening there that makes them look alive. And Jesus says they're dead. What we actually prioritize will come out in our practice. It will come out 
in our works, beloved, as a church, as a people. To lose gospel devotion, then, is a sin that must be repented of, beloved. It's not a mere like, hey, why don't we prioritize that again? When, we've, when we're not prioritizing it, we're sinning. We're dying, Jesus says. If it goes on long enough, Jesus will judge a church for this. In Ephesus, he's talked about it in terms of removing their lampstand. Back in chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus will keep that church dead or let it die. And he'll use another one. He's not going to lose. But all of us are invited to participate in this. This is why we can let nothing compromise our exclusive commitment to the gospel, right? That's the only reason to have me around here. There, there are, beloved, anybody can preach, right? It, it's, I'm, I'm telling you, if, if you can speak publicly on any level, you can do it, right? What we need from a pulpit, whether it's me or not, is, is a constant focus on the truths of the gospel. We preach, we endeavor to preach Christ crucified here. That's the goal. That's the point. This is what we're about. This is, we're, we're, we're not responsible as a church to preserve any other message or proclaim any other kingdom but the gospel. Not all other messages or kingdoms are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but none are the kingdom of God. None are the gospel, the means of salvation for sinners. So we must be like Paul. It's not, you don't look at Paul and say, well, that was nice that he was like that. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he was determined to know nothing among them, but Christ and him crucified. We start to understand the level of exclusivity the gospel deserves and demands in a church. It's just, it's, uh, that's what it's about. We're, we as a church don't demonize every other thing in the world. We're saying, this is what we're about, though. This is what we trumpet. This is what we herald. This is what we say. That's the vigilance the text is calling for. Let nothing else even get near being in the way of proclaiming the gospel. Departing from a deliberate devotion to preserving and proclaiming the gospel will numb us to the Lordship of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? I, I think that the, the normal assumption is if, if, you, if you push grace and push the cross and forgiveness of sins, people will become lazy. The text tells us again and again throughout Scripture, the more you focus on that here, the less likely it is that you'll die the less likely it is that your works would be incomplete in the sight of God. Do you want completeness and wholeness and, and deeds of love and service to one another and genuine disciple-making and evangelism in the community and all these things? Then you stay focused on what you heard and keep it, right? That's the key. Let's listen to Jesus. Let's listen to Jesus. Departing from a deliberate devotion to preserving and proclaiming the gospel numbs us actually to the lordship of Jesus in verse 3, the authority he has over our lives. It literally makes us forgetful and unaware of the fact that Jesus Christ, the one we read about in the Bible, knows the name of Moundsville Baptist Church, knows our works, knows our hearts, is looking at us. We have a reputation with him, beloved. And if we, forgetting this, Lacking exclusive devotion to the gospel 
lacking the preservation and proclamation of it. It numbs us. It literally makes us forgetful, so forgetful, as it did in Sardis, that we even become like those upon whom the return of Jesus would come like a thief. How do churches die? How does that happen? Now, I suppose you, you could say, well, maybe everybody that supports it and, and stood by it passed away, and that's, that's a legitimate reason. The question to ask there, although it would be, I guess, could be insensitive, is, is why didn't those folks build disciples? You, you can only build a heritage for so long, right? Because eventually the priorities of a culture change. So if you instilled it, I'm not a psychologist or an anthropologist, but just think anybody could see that. If you, if you instilled in young people in the 50s how important it was to go to church, give their offerings, all those things, they, they would do it. That was part of what our society valued as a whole. Now, beloved, you have to pull teeth just to get people to show up. You really do. And that's not, I'm not cracking on anybody. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it, it just, things change. So, now, it's, it's, you hear me preach like the, the building's not a priority, so you say, well, you're not helping, but I, I, would, I think that if you understand that how the building can be used for the gospel, then it, it becomes good to preserve it, right? But how, how, how do churches die? How, how do they just burn out? This one gentleman's commentary on Revelation, Richard Phillips, he gives three explanations from how the church in Sardis died that are fairly instructive for how churches in general might die. First, just as the city itself had once been overthrown because they didn't watch for enemies or didn't think they could be overtaken, churches can be overcome for that same reason. They aren't watchful against spiritual attacks. They just aren't thinking in that way. Is our church, the first question you ask is, are we structured biblically for that? Right, Because if it's not a thing we say we need to be doing, we're just hoping that it's happening, it's probably not happening. Right, So are we structured biblically? Are we in order biblically? So that we have soldiers set on the walls, so to speak, for that purpose. Watching for error, protecting the church from error. Do we have people assigned to that? I would say, and you know I've talked about this a lot, we'll talk about it more, I'd say without a plural eldership, a church is out of order. And if it's out of order, this defense is not happening, beloved. So we have to move towards this, all right? We, we at least have to start there. Why, Tony? Why would we start there? Because the elders have been given the responsibility to guard the flock. In the book of Acts in chapter 20, when Paul wants to protect the Ephesian churches, he calls the elders of those churches to himself in the latest and says, watch out. Because they're going to creep in from among your own selves and teach twisted things that lure brothers and sisters away. That's precisely one of the things that happens that can kill a church. Who is there to defend it? It has to be a group of elders, right? It has to be a group of men for that purpose. No other group is intended by God to have that task rather than a plural eldership. But also in the way we're set up, right? In the way we do things, the way we teach things. I'm not indicting those things i'm asking us to consider are we poised right now to defend against error in all the places it could come from are we learned enough in the word to recognize error when we hear it we we must be on guard against false teaching against temptations to sin against worldly compromise 
Careless neglect in this matter will kill us. Because again, where doctrine gets bad, submission to Jesus gets bad. That's why it matters. Secondly, just like Sardis, churches can die when they rely on their impressive name, their spiritual legacy, or their rich heritage, but don't have as much concern or tend with as much vigilance to their spiritual life, their spiritual vitality. It is so easy to coast on what we accomplished in the past, right? It's, it's, that's one way that a rich heritage can be negative or a negative aspect of having a rich heritage is that we can rest on those laurels. We can say, well, it used to be so great and we used to do so much and that's wonderful. I'm very thankful that we did or if we did, right? But it's, it's, we're not building a memorial in the world, right? That, that's not what we're doing here. We, we, it's so easy to coast on the past, on achievements and numbers and things like this, things that give you the reputation of being alive. But no reputation can save us from our sins. No reputation can spread the gospel. No reputation will keep us devoted or holy to the Lord. So we must be vigilant to the ongoing need for faith in Christ, for strength in suffering, for strength in trials. The last reason he gave of the three churches can die because they pursue vain and empty things in place of the true spiritual riches of salvation. Right, The city of Sardis once exalted in their wealth and ease. It turns out over the years they failed to cultivate better things like courage, like strength, like wisdom, like vigilance. And they were completely overrun and became a byword. Churches today can focus on finances as their main focus, right? Music programs, ministry events, lavish facilities, many otherwise good things. But even with all these, if we don't have the glory of Christ present through the indwelling Holy Spirit, we are dead or dying. Dead or dying, beloved. The substance of our church must be the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners and the life of faith that flows from our living Lord. Faith in Christ, worship through Christ, genuine service for Christ must always be the focus of a church. Eyes forward, never backward, never pining for the past, hungry and hopeful for the future where the true treasure lies. It's out there, remember? It's not back there. It's not behind us. We call them the good old days because we've never known truly better days. Right? Never backward, never pining, hungry and hopeful for the future where the true treasure and true joys lie. If, if, if we focus on literally anything other than the gospel, what we heard, we won't just lose our lampstand. Our, our church will lose its life. It'll lose its life. And, and here, here's the thing. Let me, let me say this. I think when pastors start to talk about a church moving forward, making changes, all those things. I think maybe the assumption among the elderly people is that they won't be a part of that. That the way the church changes, they won't fit in. Um, they'll lose everything they liked and everything they had. And they really can't be a part of it because that's more what the young people do now. And it's their church now. And Beloved, I'm going to say young is under 50. Okay? Until I'm 50. Then I'll move the marker a little bit. But 
I'm, I'm, we need all the older people in this church. Absolutely. If, if we learn to be parents from you, we learn how to hold down a job from you, right? We, we learn how to stick in one place when it's hard from you. So maybe we don't always like the same kind of music. Who cares? Don't. When I'm talking about changing, my intent, beloved, is that we become a church that isn't dead. I'm not saying we're dead. I'm saying I don't want to die. Right? I don't want to just get up here every Sunday and, and run maintenance on, on, on keeping this going. I want to keep this going. Right? It's, it's, beloved, we're one body. One people. We didn't even know each other existed until like three and a half, four years ago. And now here we are, our very lives intertwined, as far as we know, until eternity. Right? As I stand here today, I have zero plans of being anywhere else but here. Right? So if that, if that's all I can see, then that's what I want to reflect. Right? It, just realize. Being faithful will require the entire body. If we're not growing up together, we're not growing up. So just, just don't, don't bail if, if, if sometime, I, I don't have any crazy ideas for change. That's not what I mean. I'm just saying I don't want you bailing out like you're not going to fit. The more faithful we become to scripture, the more all of us will fit. That's the goal. That's the goal. So don't get discouraged. I'm always there. Right. If, if 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 you know in the next couple of years as as some things change and all that or or we try to make them change, beloved, if you feel uneasy and and displaced, let's talk. Let's not become enemies over it. All right. We don't need to do that. And nobody's treating me like that. Nobody's being mean to me. No, none of that. That's not where this is coming from. I'm saying we can talk. Right. And sometimes we might talk, and I might realize I'm wrong. That I know it's hard to believe. But that can happen, right? So just, I'm, I'm serious. I make it funny so that we'll laugh and not be. Just, just don't anybody go anywhere. There's no reason to leave this church, beloved. We're, COVID slowed us down. Yeah, it's, it's going to take some time. But I mean, God is doing things, man. He's doing things here in people's hearts. So just trust Him. We're not dead. We're not dead. I just don't want to die. But you don't either. So let's... Look to Christ. If we focus, let me say it again, on literally anything other than the gospel, we won't just lose our lampstand, our church will lose its life. But, thanks be to God, beloved, the letter to Sardis doesn't just show us how churches die. It shows us how they might be revived. Five commands in this text. Do you see them? Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember what you received and heard, Keep it and repent. Right? Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. So, all hope is not lost. As long as Jesus is on the throne, He's speaking to us from. And beloved, He is. Look at verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. That's all Jesus needs, even though I don't like to follow Him with that verb, but so to speak. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The pure garments of the faithful few in Sardis, that is, those who have not soiled their garments by forgetting the truth they heard and becoming incomplete in their works by negligence in staying committed to what they received, these pure ones forced out of the white robes all true believers are going to wear to the great wedding at the end, by wedding feast at the end, by, by linking our future to the present experience of believers shows us that the life motivated by hope is shaped by the goal for which we're waiting. That's where we get our hope from as we persevere, from looking to the fact that one day Christ is going to clothe me in white, bring me in to the kingdom forever. Because we hope for white garments, then we pursue faithfulness now. Through, remember, our devotion to the truth of the gospel we heard that saved us. Right? Hope is the fruit of the promise of the gospel. It's paramount for the whole life of faith. Hope is. The author of Revelation wrote in 1 John 3, 2 through 3, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. Isn't that amazing? Even as he, Jesus, is pure. That's how purity comes. Gospel hope in a person in the church. The church cannot then proclaim any cause or kingdom that could even make us consider we would also want to hope in something else. Our hope, that is the hope that purifies us as Jesus wills for us to be pure as his church, is completely dependent then on vigilance in the gospel. If Anything shakes our hope in the gospel, we will die. And the valley needs the gospel too much for us to die. Jesus not only clothes his people, but he knows their names in verse 5. It, it seems the majority of the church in Sardis had this reputation of being alive, but were dead. But Jesus promises his faithful minority, which will probably always be the case, right? Numbers-wise, even in the church that he knows their names, and they're irrevocably written down in the book of life. Right? To be erased from God's book was a curse Jewish people would pray to fall on apostates. But Jesus promises that those who conquer will never be erased from the Lamb's book of life. Only for these names will that last judgment for those who rejected Jesus be the joyful vindication of those who have embraced him. Only these will enter the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, 27. And how is it exactly that just the appearance of our name in a book is enough to outweigh the extensively damning record and evidence of our sins and rebellion written down in the book of our deeds in Revelation 20, verse 12? Beloved, because the book of life belongs to the Lamb who was slain in sacrifice for every name written in it. Revelation thirteen eight, And by doing so, he has made our robes white. And he will speak our name as well as write it down there in verse 5. Jesus assured those who would confess his name before the people 
or before people that he would confess their names before his father and the angels. And here it is. And remember this. It's not just a passing moment to admire. Don't ever forget Stephen dying in martyrdom in Acts 7.56. We get this beautiful picture of a promise kept when, having borne his faithful witness about Jesus, as he's dying, getting pelted with heavy rocks, Stephen sees heaven open and the Son of Man standing. The Son of Man presenting himself as a witness to receive Stephen at God's right hand. As far as I know, it's the only time in Scripture you see Jesus standing in this way. Our Lord Jesus is able to grant revival to a dead or a dying church by the power of His Holy Spirit. But beloved, we have to realize we can't even dabble in nominal Christianity. We, we, we just can't do it. We have to awaken, beloved. We aren't dead, but we need to seek the Lord's face by His Spirit so that we're not dying either, right? Where are we compromising? If we are, where are we entertaining and coddling divided allegiances, right? Hope those aren't gunshots. That's pretty close. Where are we out of order, right? Where are we shooting ourselves in the foot as a church? How, how are each of our own hearts standing, or how might each of our own hearts be standing in the way of what God means to accomplish through His church in this valley? So, beloved, as it was for Sardis, it is to us, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, Remember what you received and heard, then keep it and repent when we don't. Because none of us want Jesus to appear to us like a thief. We want him to appear to us as a shepherd, a savior, a lord, and a king. I want white robes. You want white robes. I want to see my name written down. I want to see Jesus. I want him to greet me as his own. I want to hear him say, well done, just like you do, right? Well, here's where we do well, right? Because we're safe and secure in Christ. And beloved, if we're not intentionally fixed on His grace for us and the beautiful, unending, world-conquering, life-giving, glorious gospel, then we will die as a church. And I've talked to all of you. I know some of you more than I know others. Nobody here wants this church to die. So it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. I don't want to just exist. I don't want to just have a reputation of being alive want to conquer the threat of compromise in these last days by being vigilant to reject the things, even the good things, that undermined our exclusive or the exclusive centrality of the gospel.